Let's say thank you to our worship team again. You guys did a great job. Thank you. Ah, it's a, good, it's a beautiful day. I'm so thankful for the sunshine. I could never live in one of those upper Pacific Northwest states, you know? I would die. <laughs> Born and raised in Colorado, just need that sunshine. Uh, like Pastor Steve said, we're going to be starting in our series in Advent today. And uh, our new Advent series is called Naming Jesus, or Naming Christmas. That's what it's called, and uh, we're going to be looking at the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the, the name of Jesus, and what he kind of came and did. And uh, today we're going to fittingly start this time in the Old Testament, looking forward at what Jesus did, because that's what Advent is all about, right? Um, it's, a, it's a time of anticipation where we can get excited about the things that Jesus is doing did you guys know that Advent is actually the beginning of the Christian calendar? Uh, this is not so much an ending as it is a beginning for us. And so really uh, an exciting time uh, to just focus in on who Jesus is. So without any further ado, we're going to read in Isaiah beginning or chapter 9 beginning with verse 2. But before we do, we should pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. We praise you and we lift your name on high. God, you are our king, and we lift you up as holy. We love you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, here's what it says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Uh-oh. I think we might have gotten these a little bit out of order. Maybe not. Sorry. I'm going to just read this to you, and it won't be up on the screen. All right. Uh, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne, on David's throne, and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time and on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, I know I'm kind Oh, thank you. You rock. All right. Uh, I know that this is a big chunk of Scripture, but it's so drenched in meaning that I felt like it was, it was the perfect Scripture to... Like, if we're going to take a big bite, this is a perfect Scripture to take a big bite out of. This section in Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Jesus is coming, before he was born. But it stands as this valiant, if you will, statement about who the Messiah is and and who he will be and the work that he will do. This section begins with a a really exciting picture that those walking in darkness will see a great light, that those living in deep darkness will, there's there's a light coming upon them. You've enlarged the nation. You've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. 
Here we see that the work of the Messiah will, number one, shine on those walking in darkness. Uh, it, it, there's, this is no mistake. This is, this is a very intentional light shining forth in the darkness. Have you ever noticed how when the sun rises, there's no war between the light and the dark? The, the light just shines forth, and in the same way, the light that the Messiah is bringing is just going to shine forth into the darkness. Those who are living in darkness are, are anyone, in my opinion, both Jews and, and Gentiles alike, who, who exist outside of the family of God. Because being ethnically Jewish, even in the Old Testament, it, I would say, doesn't necessarily make you a, a member of God's family as much as being obedient to his commands does. Anyway... Uh, the, the Jewish nation has had this long history back and forth of, of following God and then falling away and then following God and falling away. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, have, have never really had God's special revelation. And so both of these groups, many from both of these groups, are, are, are living in darkness. Some knowingly rejected and those who have never heard. And the Messiah is ushering in this period of light where God will expand his message and, and who he is outside of just a small remnant. And as a result, there's going to be a, a celebration. And the celebration is going to be like when people bring in the harvest and, and they're celebrating just like what we just did at Thanksgiving or It'll be like when warriors take over an area and they get to divide the plunder. This is the celebration, the excitement, the joy that comes along with the light of the Messiah going forth. Palpable. The work of the Messiah is profound as he brings the light of God to the lost. Now Isaiah, of course, isn't done. Instead, he goes on to talk about how in the midst of God bringing, on, bringing his light to the darkness, he takes on this role of a freedom fighter. And I know that's kind of like an interesting word to use to describe it, but in verses 4 and 5, we see Isaiah pointing back to the book of Judges, particularly Judges 6 and 7, the story of Gideon. You guys are all probably familiar, but just as a quick refresher, Gideon uh, was a judge in Israel, a leader in Israel, and during his time, the, the Midianites were the biggest issue, the biggest enemy. And uh, Gideon musters this massive army, but God whittles it down to just 300 men. You guys probably remember, like, if you guys don't want to be here, you can go home, and a bunch of people leave, and then uh, they do the, like, water test, and whoever drinks in a certain way, they go, go home, and the other people stay, and they get down to 300 men. And then God gives them victory over the Midianite army. They surround them, and then they break clay pots, and they have torches, and they blow trumpets, and the Midianite army goes crazy and basically kills themselves, and then they retreat, and Israel pursues them and, and destroys them along the way. And Isaiah is saying that the victory that comes with the work of the Messiah over the oppressor is like that victory. Now, there's some really important things that happen in Gideon's victory, right? That, that, the whole reason that God whittled it down to 300 men and then didn't have them go with swords necessarily, but with clay pots and fire and trumpets was so that they would know that the work, the victory was his. The victory belonged to the Lord. And in the same way, Isaiah is saying, this victory will belong to the Lord. Isaiah says that in this defeat, 
the yoke and the rod of the oppressor will be broken. Now, when you hear the word yoke, if you're anything like me, you're thinking of like the yellow thing on the inside of the egg. Of course, it's not what he's talking about. The yoke is, is what was used to harness a, 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 like an ox or a donkey. It's the piece of wood or, or whatever that goes over the shoulders of the animal that makes it able to pull the wagon or pull the plow or whatever. And the rod was... Uh, I, I, I watch this happen all the time in Africa. Little uh, shepherd boys walking around with these big old long flexible rods and they whip their animals on the, on the butt cheeks to get them to move <laughs> off the road or whatever as you need to pass by. Both of these are, are tools of control, of, of oppression. And the, the work of the Messiah is bringing an end to that oppression. It, he's breaking the yoke and cracking the rod. And the victory is complete. The oppressor, and this victory is so complete that as it happens, the oppressors are devoted to the fire. That's what that little section in verse three that, or verses, verse five that talks about fire, that's what it's talking about. They're, they're devoted to fire. I think it's, it's saying that the oppressor is cast into hell, basically. Now, in the context of the Messiah, that we see that this defeat of oppressors and this fight for freedom is true at at many levels. It's literally true in that the work of the Messiah will ultimately bring an end to oppressive human leaders. Because when he comes again, he's going to be the king above all other kings. There's no one going to be in higher authority than him. So if he, the highest king, is a good king, there's not going to be any kind of physical, like literal human oppressors oppressing us. But it's also true in a gospel way. Just as the gospel expands to those trapped in darkness in verses 2 and 3, I believe that in these two verses, the work of the Messiah brings an end to not just the literal physical human oppressors, but also to the oppression of sin and death and hell and the enemy himself. That's, what, that's, that's the gospel right there. Our king conquered sin and death. The slavery of sin is broken. Satan is put on his heels. Just as our physical oppressors are put in subjugation under the one true living God. Ultimately, we're talking about true victory here. The Messiah being the one true victor. I want to just pause here for a second because I know that that's like hyper-dense content. (laughs) I don't want to miss what's happening. Isaiah, in a very poetic and prophetic and profound way, hundreds of years before it's happening, is declaring the work of the Messiah to extreme accuracy. It's amazing. This is, this is crazy cool. <laughs> like, it's epic in a couple of different ways. It, it's epic first in that we're seeing that Isaiah is a true prophet because what he says is actually happening. And it's also epic in, in that what he's talking about is super awesome. The, the stronghold of sin is defeated. The enemy himself, the devil, is defeated. Human oppressors put in the rightful place under God's true authority. The saving grace and message of God being released to the world, bringing light to those trapped in darkness. 
That is, am- like, that is amazing news. Uh, like, we almost become like, oh yeah, whatever. Like, that's just like, that's a Tuesday for Christians. But for thousands of years, like, that's just not, that was not the, the, the way life was. This is a phenomenal truth. And Isaiah is still not done. This brings us to the crux of this passage in verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's epic. (laughs) So if it didn't sound to you like the Messiah already, then surely this passage sets it off in your mind, right? A child is born, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. A son is given, Jesus, the Son of God. And the government will be on his shoulders. Jesus, the one true living king. In these verses, Jesus' kingship becomes the focus of the passage. What becomes clear is that the way the Messiah will accomplish verses 2 through 5, the way he'll become the freedom fighter, the way that the, the light of God will descend on those trapped in darkness is because the, the way it's going to happen is through Jesus' kingness. <laughs> this is the how of verses 2 through 5. What becomes clear is that Jesus' authority as king is inseparable from his work as king. He is only able to accomplish this work of freedom, only able to to bring his light to the darkness because he is the the king, the Messiah, the the one with all authority. You can't take verses 6 and 7 and divide them from verses 2 through 5. And Isaiah continues, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. A, A wonderful counselor is a leader with great wisdom. Wisdom beyond normal human capacity. Mighty God. The title of the one true only living God of the Bible. Everlasting Father. The Messiah is a benevolent protector. A a, a father figure. It's worth noting here that the father that he's talking about in Isaiah is not God the Father, the, third, the first person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not that Father. It, it's a characteristic. He is Father Lee. Uh, it's actually really interesting. In the ancient Jewish context, uh, this role of being a, a benevolent protector was actually one of the highest roles that a king could have. Like, when you see in Psalm 23, he leads me by side still waters and he restores my soul... That's what every king wanted to be, a good shepherd. But no one ever lived up to it. Like, I'm reading right now in uh, Chronicles, but uh, last week or two weeks ago I was reading in uh, Kings. Man, oh man, these kings, awful, 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 awful human beings. Just like leading the people of God astray in all kinds of different ways, going this way and that way, any way except for the one way. (laughs) 
And this idea of the Messiah being a good king, a benevolent protector, a father figure, is actually counter to every Jewish king and Israelite king. It's a powerful juxtaposition, this comparison between the good king of the Messiah and the, and the evil kings of Israel and Judah. Terrible, terrible kings that, that led their people so far away from God that in 722, God allowed Israel, the northern kingdom, to fall to Assyria. And then in 586, 150 years later or so, the southern kingdom of Judah falls and gets deported to Babylon. The Messiah, on the other hand, protects, guides, and points his people to God. Isaiah continues, Prince of Peace, another trait desirable in a king, a king who establishes and keeps peace. And the Messiah is able to do this because he becomes the highest authority for all people. He keeps peace because there's no other, there's no authority higher than him. He's able to hold all power and authority under him. So because that's true, he's able to keep the peace. In these four names, we see Isaiah the prophet present the Messiah as one who would be the most perfect possible king. A truly good and wonderful king of kings. The passage continues in verse 7, describing the Messiah's kingdom. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. His kingdom will not have an end, right? And obviously this is true in, in the frame of time. There's no, be, there's no beginning end. There's no end. But there's also, I think, no geographic or political end either. When Jesus comes again, his kingdom will not, just have, will not just not have an end, it will also not have a geographical border. There will not be a place, uh, there's not going to be a geographic location that's not under the complete authority of Jesus. There's not going to be a person alive not under the complete authority of Jesus. Of his government, there will be no end. His kingdom will be complete. And then back in the passage, the reference to the throne of David harkens back to this promise that God made to David hundreds and hundreds of years before Isaiah, where he says, David, because you've been so faithful to me, one of your descendants will sit on the throne in Israel forever. And we're thinking to ourselves, well, what about the Babylonian exile? Nobody's sitting on the throne right then. But God knew that he would ultimately fulfill this in the great, 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 great grandson of David being the Messiah who will sit on the throne forever. And finally, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This is God's hand at work. God will orchestrate these events to come to pass. And he did. And he is at work making these things come to pass. And it will happen when Jesus comes again that he has complete and utter authority as the one true living God and King. All together, this passage looks at the King, the kingdom, and the work that he'll do, and it's all good. The image we get is of this powerful king bringing his light to the darkness, to, to every corner and people group on planet Earth. He's a good king. I think that the, the only question that we have left to ask ourselves is, well, how do I respond to a king like this? 
How, how do I respond to Jesus' kingship? In many ways, this question is easy to answer because there's an abundance of ways that we can respond, right? But in a, in a, at another level, it's not very easy to answer because every single one of these potential responses includes having to lay our lives down and actually make Jesus the king. <laughs> and that's really quite costly, as everyone is familiar with. One of the most important and significant ways that we can respond to Jesus' kingship is to worship. As in Matthew 28, uh, Jesus meets the women who have just encountered angels and they're running to tell the disciples, hey, here's what happened. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus meets them up on the path. And what is their response? They hit their faces, hug his feet, and worship him. That is worship. When we encounter Jesus, do we worship him? And when I say worship, uh, I don't just mean sing songs, though that's an important part of worship, of course. Uh, we might, eh, I, 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 I mean, do we, do we throw ourselves before God? Do we, do we throw ourselves before him, uh, before his throne, recognizing who he is and who we are not? And, and, and not necessarily, I mean, you don't all have to lay down on the floor, but like, like do we, at least at the level of our hearts, prostrate ourselves and hug Jesus' feet and worship him alone as God and not ourselves? We can lift our hands and worship on Sunday mornings all we want. We can kneel and, and look holy for everyone around us. No, I'm not, sorry, I shouldn't make a judgment call about why we do what we do. But, uh, like, we can do that, but in the secret times of our lives and in the secret thoughts of our minds, does Jesus really sit on the throne? Is he really the king? The object of our worship and adoration? Or is he just another thing that we think about sometimes? Are there ever other people or things that take that place as the rightful king of our lives? The, the role of Jesus. I made it a goal to read through the Bible this year. I did it once in college and I wanted to do it again. And one of the things that leapt off the scriptures at me this year was just how much God hates idolatry. Like, man... He loathes it. It, it. it breaks his very heart. Uh, when we don't worship Jesus as the rightful king, what we're doing is we're allowing other things and other people to, to take the space of king in our lives. We, we commit idolatry and break God's heart. I, I know that when we think about it, we, we think about it, well, you know, it's just a small thing, right? It was just a little bit of lust, or it's just a little bit of covetousness. It's just a little bit of greed. Don't worry about it. Just a little bit of pride. No harm done. Well, I mean, Jesus died for your sins. The, the payment is in full. You're forgiven, but that doesn't mean it's just a small thing. When we, allow, when we allow ourselves to do this, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're saying, you know, my mut sexuality is like is it's actually more important than God, or uh, my money it's it's actually more important than God, or pride is saying I'm more important than God. God, 
That's idolatry, and God hates idolatry. God sees idolatry as cheating on him. Uh, You can look at Ezekiel 23, particularly verse 20. It's a very graphic image of how much God sees idolatry as cheating on him. When we become idolatrous in any way, we are dethroning Jesus in our lives and putting his crown on someone else or something else. He hates it. He has a very reasonable expectation that we would only ever worship him. All that said, when we encounter Jesus, do we worship him alone? Do we elevate him alone as God? Do we prostrate ourselves before him and recognize that he is the king and we most certainly are not? Another potential response to Jesus as king, another potential response to Jesus as king is saying yes to him no matter what. In an earthly kingdom, when a king says, let's do this, that's what they do, right? When he says go, the people go. When, they, when he says build, the people build. When he says move, the people move. That's, that's, that's authority. We all are kind of on the same page about what authority is. It's like in Matthew chapter 8, the story of the Roman centurion and Jesus. Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. I know that you're a man with authority just like me. If you say it, it's going to happen. Jesus is the king. He does have authority. So making Jesus the king of our lives means making him the priority in how we make decisions. As followers, we must, we must say yes to Jesus all the time. Now there's obvious ways that we can say yes to Jesus. The scriptures, in the scriptures, our king makes it clear that, that we're to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, He makes it clear that we're to be generous and kind and give to those in need. He makes it clear that we are to make disciples. These are not suggestions. These are commands from the king. Right? When he says them, them, we should do them. That's what it means for him to be the king and us to not be the king. The Gospels are drenched in the commands of Jesus. And by the way, that's another good reason to know the Bible. It's another good reason to to study the Gospels and, and the New Testament and the Old Testament because how in the world are we supposed to obey the King of Kings if we don't know what the King of Kings says? But I just want to emphasize again that these sayings of Jesus, these teachings of Jesus are not just suggestions. When Jesus says it, we need to do it. I have no idea when or where it became the, the, the mainstream view of, of Jesus and the modern church that, that, that we can just see Jesus' teachings as optional. When did that happen? <laughs> like, when did it become optional to love our enemies or optional to make disciples? Or when did it become a valid option to be sexually immoral or a valid option to, uh, you know, covet or lust or any one of his... When did that become a thing? I don't know. These are commands from our king, not suggestions to be like, yeah, okay, maybe if I feel like it. Of course, of course, of course, if we mess up, he forgives us. But just because he will forgive us doesn't mean that we can just willy-nilly, you know? (laughs) If Jesus is king, we do what he says, period. And of course, depending on your theology of God speaking, I believe God speaks. I know not everybody believes that, but we can 
agree to disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ on this subject. All that said, when the Holy Spirit prompts us to do something, we need to do it. I, uh, I remember when I first started trying to be obedient to Jesus, I would, uh, it would be such a big deal that I would write it down in my journal. Like, because it was such a rare occurrence for me to hear and obey, that I, it was like, hey, I need to write this down. So I remember many times just being like, oh my gosh, I heard God's voice and I obeyed him and here's what he did. Like, like the first time I ever went to Africa, I was freaking out. I grew up in hyper-suburbia down in South Jeffco. Um, I literally thought I was going to die if I went to Africa. <laughs> like, I was way, 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 well, way wrong uh, about all that. But, like, that's where I was in my head. And so when I said yes to Jesus the first time, that was a, it was like a really big deal uh, to say yes to him in that arena. Now, when I hear the voice of God prompting me, hey, it's time to go back, it's time to visit Mariamu, it's time to say hi to the Hadza, it's like, yeah, man, let's go. I'm excited. I, I don't dread it anymore. And honestly, if I'm being honest, it feels a lot like going to my backyard now. Like, it, it, it's so normal. It's just like visiting a friend or something like that. And uh, my point in all that is, we need to say yes to Jesus. We need to learn to say yes to Jesus. And the more we say yes to Jesus, the more normal it will become to say yes to Jesus. And you won't write it down in your journal anymore because it's just like, well, that was a Tuesday. You know, like, that's what we do. We just say yes to Jesus. Now, it might never be easy, but the more we say yes, the more our faith is built. As we see the Lord at work coming through, when we say yes to him, our faith grows. When I take a step of faith and he catches me, it's like, oh, look, I can do this. So you take another step of faith and he catches you, and all of a sudden you're running, right? Because as you take steps of faith and he catches you, you'll find that he'll keep catching you because that's what he does. <laughs> so that's another response to Jesus as king, saying yes to him. Another one is conviction of sin. All throughout the pages of Scripture, as people encounter the living God, they repent. It makes sense. It happens to me all the time. Like, when I'm around really holy people, I guess, I don't know. When I'm around people who really love Jesus and really obey Him and follow Him, it's like they're convicting me with their whole, like, the way that they follow Jesus. No one ever says anything, right? But they... But just the way that they live makes me think, oh man, I need to live more intentionally for Jesus. How much more would that be true when I'm up close to the living, the living God, when I'm up close to Jesus, the King of Kings? And finally, submission. I'd say submission is maybe a summary of this. Uh, men and women alike are to submit to Christ Jesus as Lord, as King. Biblical submission has elements of all three of these things that we've already mentioned. It has elements of worship, recognizing our place before God. It says, yes, because he has all authority. It, 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 it repents or is convicted of sin because he's holy. Biblical submission says yes to Jesus all the time. He says, it says, I am yours, Lord God. 
My time, my talent, my treasure, my words, my thoughts, my actions, my body, my very life, all that I am, it's all yours. And, and, and then it leads me to say, because I am all yours, leverage my life for the sake of your kingdom. That's an uncomfortable prayer to pray. Is all we are really his? What have we kept back from him? Is he just a God of a certain day or a certain moment or a certain time of life? Or is he really the king? As we head into the Christmas season, I encourage us to keep Jesus' kingship on the forefront of our minds. May we utterly, like by a long shot, establish him as the king of this season, more important than the gifts and the decorations and the family time and and the cookies and the eggnog, more important than, than the people themselves in our families. Are we willing to truly establish him as the king? I pray that in the midst of our celebrations, Jesus would not just be an afterthought. That he would not be the Sunday school answer to the meaning of the season. But that he really would be our focus. May he be the king of our lives and absolutely the king of this time of year. Let's pray. Father, you're... You are the King, and we worship you as holy. And we, uh, we surrender uh, all that we are. The, the, the secret things that we've been holding on to, we give them over to you. Lord, they, they belong to you. You are the King. We are not. Lord, we worship you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Um, Just a reminder that the offering is on the back table, and uh, I just want to say I'm so thankful to be a part of this body of Christ, where I know that there are many people in this room who have made Jesus the King. And for those of you who haven't, and I'm not making any assumptions that anybody hasn't, but for those of you who who haven't, let me just say there is nothing more glorious, there is nothing more satisfying, nothing more joy-giving than making Jesus the King. I've never been more satisfied in my life than I am with him as the one true living God. Anyway, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your week. God bless.